Uh, Would you pray with me as we get started this morning? Father, we want to take a moment and quiet our hearts now to, to hear from you and even to get a glimpse and an insight through your word as to what it is you would have us do together in the world. Uh, We want to, with humble hearts of worship, just submit our entire agenda to you, that you would have your way, that the love of your son, Jesus Christ, would control and compel us, God, and that we would give ourselves wholeheartedly by faith uh, to the work that you have given us to do in your word. We pray all these things together now in Jesus' name, amen. Well, most people have some kind of experience or at least a perception of local churches. We know what those are. Uh, We know in general what local churches tend to do, but depending on your faith background or church experience, our sense of why churches exist and what they exist to do may actually be very different. Uh, Many people would assume, for example, that part of why churches exist is to host services like this, because at least most of the ones that I'm aware of do. That's got to be part of the mix. But others might associate local churches with a different kind of ministry, whether that is a certain kind of outreach, like a a food pantry or a a children's ministry, VBS or or Awana, or cross-cultural missions of some sort with any number of different emphases. But churches also provide spiritual care to their members. They host events of all different kinds. And so there there are so many options that sometimes it can be a bit challenging to zero in on what exactly churches exist to do. What is our unifying mission and purpose in the world? What kind of work or ministry will that involve? What does success even look like as a church? How should we aim for it? What should churches like ours do? Last week, we considered who we are. We saw we are a gospel-centered family of disciples. This is our new and shared identity. But today, as we consider what we do, basically our mission, we're going to see that this shared faith and this new identity that we have in Christ is meant to and should compel us to do a few things together, a few very important things. And in particular today, we're going to see that we're a gospel-centered family of disciples devoted to three things, devoted to worshiping God, to making disciples, and to multiplying local churches. We are convinced that these three things are our New Testament non-negotiables even. They are the things we exist to do more than anything else. Everything we do should flow from these three priorities and in some way support and serve these three priorities. If we neglect any one even of these three priorities, we would be in some way a less than faithful church. We'd be missing something vital, I trust we'll see today, about God's plan of redemption even and about our place within it. So naturally, I want to spend the rest of our time showing us these things in the scriptures and also, of course, considering what all of this may mean even for us at this stage in the life of our church. And so first, uh, we exist to worship God. It's going to be the longest point. 
of the sermon, or very good. To worship basically means to ascribe supreme value and worth to someone or to something. To worship someone is to treat and to engage them as if they are all important. It's to pour out our affections, our devotion, our faith to someone we adore in a profound and spiritual way. And it is not hard to see that worship is central to the story of Scripture, and it is central even to our very purpose as human beings. But what I want to do is just consider how we see that theme sort of emerging in the story of Scripture. First, in the beginning... The one true God creates the heavens and the earth, this beautiful, perfect creation, which is tailor-made to reveal his invisible glory. He is spirit, but he's made all of this stuff for us to see and know what he's like. At the pinnacle of his creation are human beings whom he made, we read, in his image, which again means he is spirit. He's invisible at this point in the story, he doesn't have a body. There's, no, there's nothing of him to see, and yet he's made us so that we can, in a sense, see most clearly what he's like. This is what humans are. This is why we exist, to make God's glory visible. And so he creates this world. He puts humans at the pinnacle of it all, and each step of the way he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. And then at the very end, when humans have dominion over all of it, he zooms out and he says, it is very good. He even gives this first man and woman a shared mission and a purpose. He tells them to be fruitful and to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. And this was God's vision here. I call it God's grand vision from the very beginning, to fill this creation of his with his glory-reflecting, image-bearing people. But then, of course, we know we rebelled against this God. Rather than being grateful for him and his creation, rather than taking him at his word, we thought it might be better if we decided what was right and what was wrong for ourselves. We wanted to, quote, be like God, we read in in Genesis, with our own personal knowledge of good and evil. This corrupted us. Uh, In particular, it turned our worship away from the living God, inward, onto ourselves. And as a result, rather than being fruitful, multiplying, and filling the earth with praise, for instance, we were fruitful, and we did multiply, but as we did, God's earth was filled with violence and chaos and sin. It gets so bad that God has to destroy the whole earth with a flood. Then as soon as that human race starts to multiply again, they, they unite together, which sounds good, right, at first. But when you consider the fact that he just told them to spread and fill the earth, they're actually being disobedient. They come together, and they try to build a tower up to God, almost as if to reach to his heights. You can see their worship has been corrupted. And so in judgment, God confuses their languages and he scatters them into these different people groups called nations. And for the rest of the story of Scripture, these nations rage against one another. There is rivalry, there is chaos, there is war. Okay, so here we are, just 11 chapters into the Bible, and we have a world filled with sinful nations that do not worship God. The rest of the Old Testament from that point forward 
is about God raising up a nation for himself, the nation of Israel from the descendants of Abraham. And the idea, at least, was that this covenant nation would worship God. He commits himself to them through a series of covenants. He dwells among them in the tabernacle. He forgives their sins through a sacrificial system of worship. And all along, the aim was that through this worshiping nation, God would bless all the other nations. That he would reverse the effects of the fall and restore the worship of humanity back to him. So here's just a glimpse of what Israel wanted for all these other nations from the book of Psalms. This is a collection of their corporate prayers. Israel prayed this for the rest of the world. In Psalm 22, they pray, All the ends of the earth shall remember and turn to the Lord, and all the families of the nations shall worship before you. For kingship belongs to the Lord, and he rules over the nations. Here is Psalm 86. There is no one like you among the gods, O Lord, nor are there any works like yours. All the nations you have made shall come and worship before you, O Lord, and shall glorify your name for you are great and do wondrous things. You alone are God. Here's Psalm 117. Praise the Lord, all nations. Extol him, all peoples, for great is his steadfast love towards us, and the faithfulness of the Lord endures forever. Praise the Lord. I want you to notice what the Israelites wanted for all of these other nations is to worship their God. As God always intended for them to do from the very beginning when he first created the human race with those first two, that first couple. And when Jesus finally came as a Jewish man, the ultimate Israelite, proclaiming this good news of the kingdom of God here on earth, part of what his gospel sets right, maybe the most important part of what it sets right, is our worship of God. Jesus came so that people of all nations could worship the God of Israel once again in spirit and in truth. And we get a beautiful glimpse of this in his high priestly prayer toward the end of his life and ministry in the Gospel of John, we read this. When Jesus spoke these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and he said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you. I glorified you on earth, he says, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. Thereafter, glory. And here's where we fit into this whole equation. The, he continues, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them. He's talking of us, the disciples who would come to know him. That they may be one, even as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one. And here's why. So that the world may know that you've sent me and loved them, even as you love me. Notice this. God the Father is after glory in his mission. God the Son is after glory. It's the whole point of this cosmic mission. They're on together, and they are seeking that glory by redeeming sinful people like you and me and making all of us one in this new spiritual family we talked about last week. In the same way that we are one, 
And I think this makes sense even more so of what we read last week when Peter wrote to a group of local churches like ours made up of people from all nations, saying, you, he says, are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possessions, and here's what we exist to do, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. In other words, Peter is saying in light of this whole story, guys, it's working. He's doing it. It's happening. God is redeeming a people for his own possession from among all these raging nations in the story of Scripture. Why is he doing it? So that we might proclaim his excellencies. So that, as Paul writes in Philippians, at the name of Jesus, every knee will bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Christ is Lord, hear this, to the glory of God the Father. This is by far, first and foremost, the most important thing that the gospel compels us to do. It is to worship the triune God, period. We could do a million other great things, and if we fail to do that as our central task Together, we have utterly and miserably failed at the whole project. And it is so important that we start here rather than moving on to another list of long to-dos because apart from this Christ, apart from our worshiping spiritual union with this Christ, we can do nothing. Nothing. All of our doing must flow from a heart that adores and desperately needs this God. And I want you to hear this in light of what we do. If we don't adore and desperately need this God, church, listen, we will be of no use in the life of this church. I want to say that again. If we don't adore and desperately need this God, we will be of no use in the life and ministry of this church, no matter how much stuff we might even get done frankly, how productive we could be, or how impressively we do it all. And so before we consider how it's going for us at Redemption Church, let's first consider this. Is God my favorite thing about this church? Am I growing more and more needy for him in my life? Do I cherish and cling to his word Is his glory the thing that I want more than anything else for this church? Uh, In recent years, it's kind of become cool to say that church is not just about Sundays and, and, uh, and, you know, worship is about all of life and stuff like that. And certainly there's a lot of elements of truth to that, no question. But I want to be clear about this. The most important thing that we do as a church is this right here. And it always will be. It's the weekly gathering of God's people to worship and adore him. And this is because God is the biggest deal in our church. And this is the one time when all of us gather to exalt and delight in him. And therefore, the way that we do our weekly worship is particularly important, and I want you to know it's also very purposeful. I want you to notice, I hope you've noticed, that the word of God, that the gospel of Jesus Christ is always at the center of our worship gatherings. 
We begin with a call to worship, our, each service, from Scripture, as the church has done for many, many centuries. This is meant to get our eyes off of ourselves and our daily lives and to lift our gaze onto God and his redemptive work. If you come a little late, you're going to miss that, by the way. We need that. Uh, we sing songs that are saturated with clear and biblical language about the good news of our resurrected king, not a bunch of mushy stuff that could easily be just as true about your boyfriend or your girlfriend. I love you and be lost without you and you're so beautiful in every way. No, no. All hail the power of Jesus' name. Let angels prostrate fall. Bring forth the royal diadem, which is a huge crown, and crown him Lord of all. There's no mistaking what that song is about. It, it, it drips with the worship of Jesus Christ. Come behold the wondrous mystery in the dawning of the king. He, the king of heaven's praises, robed in frail humanity. In our longing, in our darkness, now the light of life has come. Look to Christ who condescended, took on flesh to ransom us. You just don't talk that way about your girlfriend. At least I hope not. <laughs> Better not. Our aim in singing has very little to do with the style of it all. We don't pay much attention to that. It's on purpose. Or, frankly, the novelty of our song selection. What's everybody singing these days? And how can we keep it really fresh and neat? That fresh and neat is not really a high value for us, okay? This has everything to do with us together rejoicing in the truth and the power of the gospel, week in and week out, which is something, frankly, that every Christian should delight to do regardless of their age, regardless of their style or their musical preferences. For that reason, uh, we add new songs occasionally if they meet these criteria and serve that end, but we try not even to add too many songs too often because the point of each of these songs is that we would belt and declare these glorious truths together, and you're not going to do that if we're singing two new songs every week. And so if we have to sing the same library of 60 songs for the rest of my life, I'm fine with that. We got some goodies. Uh, let's not worry about nailing the right vibe, getting all the feels just perfectly right. Stop. Let's adore the living God. And I thank God for so many incredibly talented uh, worship leaders and musicians in the life of our church who, who understand this vision and who faithfully and humbly lead us in those ways. Thank you to you guys who are serving even today in that. It's been beautiful. Each week, as we've just done, we pray uh, together for someone, in this case it was us, in the life of our church, or something going on in the life of our church, or something going on in our world. We do that because the God we worship is real, he hears prayers, and he is our supreme treasure and value. So we bring everything to him every week. As a general rule, the climax of our worship service each week is an expositional sermon, which we're getting back to as soon as we can. First, what happens is someone gets up, they read a particular passage of Scripture, and they say every week, this is God's word for us today, and we say together what? Thanks, Thanks be to God. That matters. We do that very much on purpose. 
I would even say that moment right there is an important part of all of our week because that's exactly right. God is speaking and moving in our church through his word, and he does that in this way. And then usually after that, one of our elders or a pastor friend in the community uh, will help us to see what God is trying to get done in that particular passage, how it points us to the gospel of Jesus Christ, what it means for us as a gospel-centered family of disciples. Uh, during our services, uh, we're, we have one coming up even, we also baptize people into the name of Christ, into his death and his resurrection as a profession of their faith in this gospel message. We regularly take the Lord's Supper to rejoice in his body and his blood shed for us and the new fellowship that we now share and enjoy as a result of it. Church, more than anything else, we exist to worship God because of all that he has done for us in Christ. Now, if you were to even tell me, Danny, here's the deal. I can serve as a deacon. I can meet with three people a week for discipleship. I can lead multiple teams. I can clean the bathrooms at the new building. I'll do that. I can help you with your sermon prep. I can do all that, or I can, I can come on Sunday mornings, but I can't do both. What do you think? Here's what I would say to you. I would say to you, listen, don't worry about all the other stuff. Come on Sundays, and we'll figure the rest of it out. I really would. I really would. And it's because we together are being built into a holy temple in which the Lord dwells. And this is the time each week where all of us living stones are actually connected. God does stuff when that happens. It's because we're a spiritual family, as we've seen, united by faith in God's Son, and Sunday mornings are the family meal where we hear and sing and pray and feast on our Father's Word together. Church, we exist to worship this God together. So I want you to consider, how is your worship life? Is this a vital part of your involvement at Redemption? Next, we also exist to make disciples. Uh, there's a lot of talk in all four of the gospel accounts about being Jesus' disciples. Most famously, our scripture reading today, Jesus gives the church's marching orders. He sends the disciples out in the Great Commission. He says to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them into this church and teaching them to, to uh, obey all that he has commanded. In other words, he basically said, go into all the world, preach the good news, help people follow me. Everywhere. All people. This is our mission. Now then, interestingly, in the book of Acts and in the epistles, there's very little mention, actually, of, of being disciples and discipleship, at least compared to the Gospels. It goes a little silent. Instead, we read a lot of things about putting on the new self, which is Christ, or walking by the Spirit, empowered by Christ, or by being conformed into the image of Christ. This is, by and large, what we mean when we talk about making disciples. We mean helping one another to follow Jesus and to conform our lives to the pattern of his life. In fact, we've developed sort of a framework for discipleship at Redemption. We call this our discipleship pathway. Probably notice in your handout, we actually printed it just to give it to you. It's a good resource, and it's going to help you understand a lot of what we do as a church. And all we've done here is to take some of the most important things we're called to do in the scriptures, and these are not particularly controversial. These are things like repenting and believing the gospel, things like being baptized, 
things like growing in the knowledge of Christ, serving, uh, sharing the gospel, and so on. All we've done is we've taken a number of these things and we've put them in what seems to be a logical order. And here again, we're not trying to cause any controversies. We're just saying, basically, uh, you should probably believe and understand the gospel before you start sharing it with people in the world. This is the kind of stuff we're talking about. The point of this pathway is simply to describe what a person's life looks like as they grow to be more and more like Jesus and how it works for us to pursue that end together. This way we can think and talk the same way about what it means to make disciples. It's a really simple pathway. Uh, You should see it on the screen here, just kind of in in broad form, and the details are in your handout. There are sort of three legs to this pathway, and in short, the whole thing is about helping our friends grow into disciples and helping disciples grow into disciple-makers. That's it. Very simple. This is the direction we want our lives to move as we grow together as disciples. Uh, And notice, discipleship always ends with each disciple learning how to help other people follow Jesus. This is the aim. It's not just about us in our lives. It's about our lives being lived out into the world for the sake of Christ. And for each of these three legs of the pathway, we basically just lay out a number of next steps to consider at that point. For example, for our friends who do not know Christ, we want them to just join us on Sunday mornings, start making some friends here, maybe join a small group, uh, learn about how the Bible works, Work through any tough questions and objections to the faith you might have, of course, with the whole goal of being able to understand the gospel, that they might repent and believe in Jesus. And then baptism, a profession of their faith in Christ, is this next step that kind of transitions them from a friend to a life of discipleship as a disciple. The disciple path begins for us, notice, with church membership. Uh, you should probably see why that is in light of our sermon last week. For us, that's, that's sort of a starting point. Part of our following Jesus is to do it with the brothers and sisters who are also in him. And then we have just a long list of areas to grow in spiritually. This is just the bread and butter in the life of our church. And a lot of these would fit into these three categories of the head and the heart and the hands. We want to become like Christ in, in what we think and know about God. We want to become like Christ in our prayer lives, our, our spiritual life of devotion and intimacy with God. We want to become like Christ in obedience in all areas, in, in work, in, in marriage, and in family, and navigating conflict, and stewarding our finances, right? And as each disciple grows more mature in the faith, eventually our hope is that they will then start helping others to follow Jesus in these ways, which leads to the disciple-maker pathway. This pathway is all about going back to the beginning of the path and helping other people to walk along it. And so you'll notice um, it may look like leading a small group at that point instead of just being a part of one. Uh, It might look like actually sitting down and helping someone to sort through and make sense of the Bible rather than just trying to learn and grow in that yourself, right? Now, just a few just points about how this works and how to think about it. The first thing I want to point out is that this is not a a program. This is not like a step-by-step thing. You did this, and I move on, and I'm done with that. It's not how it works at all. And and also, we just want to say, life doesn't always look this way, right? Some of you are going to say, you're going to be all over the place on this pathway. That's just life. That's how that works. We understand. But instead, this is really just, it's a philosophy. It's a framework for thinking about it. And it's important we make that distinction. Because if we conflate discipleship with one specific program or ministry emphasis, what can easily happen is we show up, we participate, we do the thing, but meanwhile, our marriages are still in crisis, 
Our neighbors don't know or respect us. We all really just kind of despise our jobs. Uh, we don't really know or care much about his word outside of church, and, and we're not particularly loving or generous. We're not really being conformed into the image of Christ. Not to mention, if we fill all of our schedules with programs and ministries for us to be in the church, we'll have no time or space or energy to actually engage friends and bring them into this pathway with us. So the truth is, we're not really making disciples unless we're helping all kinds of people to take next steps along this path in all areas of life. Our programs and what we do can help us in that, but they'll never accomplish it for us. Frankly, the most important thing that we do in ministry in this way is, is really even just our personal relationships with one another. Uh, it is best not to think of discipleship as sort of a department or ministry of our church, but rather as the central ministry focus of the entire church, the very thing that all of us are involved in and share in together. And here's what that means for discipleship. And you're making disciples in our church. Uh, it means you do not have to wait for someone to give you a title or a job description to do this. Uh, you do not have to wait for someone to start that program you're hoping for or to schedule an event at all. I want to kind of insert a phrase into the life of our church, if I could. Uh, this is how discipleship works. If you want to do it in our church, here's how it goes. Make a friend, grab a Bible, and seek the Lord together. Uh, we've, we've said in the past, look at this pathway. Consider, what is my next step along this pathway? Where is God bringing me in my life? And how can I help someone else take their next step along this pathway? A lot of times this just looks like personal relationships. It looks like reading the Bible together, discussing it, praying, sharing in life together. Make a friend, grab a Bible, seek the Lord together. In fact, I want to point out all of our leadership roles in the church are actually designed simply to, to help serve us in doing this together. This is what elders are for. Elders are just lead disciple makers who are there to equip you, the members of our church, in doing this. We provide spiritual care to you, support to you, and teaching to you as you do this ministry and this work. Deacons are lead servants who meet all the practical needs that arise in the life of our church so that those practical needs don't consume all of the time and attention that we need to put toward doing this kind of ministry together. I want you to notice the very final step of this entire pathway has to do with church multiplication. What is it? I'll read it for you. Last step is to personally invest in church multiplication efforts, whether locally or cross-culturally. And that is because uh, we want to take the most mature disciple makers among us and we want to send them out to do this very same ministry to plant new churches in other communities, both here and in all the world. Because finally, number three, we exist to multiply local churches. It's really uh, common for us to look to the Bible and to ask, what does this Bible mean for me? But when we look at the Bible, what's really interesting is we find, and we're convinced as a church, that churches like ours are really the backdrop and intended audience of the whole Bible, not just individuals. In the Gospels, Jesus promises to build his church, sends us out in the Great Commission. In the book of Acts, the apostles go, they preach the gospel, they make disciples, and as they do, they gather them into local churches that work together to continue that very same mission. In the epistles, these are simply just letters written to local churches about how to do all these things together, how to live faithfully. Even the book of Revelation is addressed to seven different local churches. At the very end of it, in chapter 22, Jesus says to John here, listen, I've basically given you these visions 
for the churches. These local churches, we're convinced, are God's strategy for his redemptive work. The idea is that as we work together to proclaim the gospel and call people to repentance and faith, more and more will join us, the gospel will advance, the kingdom will spread in the earth through these churches, and therefore, gathering disciples into these churches and the multiplication of these churches is not just an optional add-on to what we do or to God's plan of redemption. It's not just something we do to kind of manage growth as a nonprofit organization. Making disciples and multiplying churches is God's strategy to reach and redeem the nations. This is exactly what the Apostle Paul gave his life to doing, making disciples and multiplying churches. And his, he describes in Ephesians 3, God called him to do this, to proclaim the unsearchable riches of Christ in this way, so that, he says, listen carefully, through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. In context, those rulers and authorities he's talking about are dark spiritual forces like Satan and demons. In other words, he's saying that these churches that I'm planting and multiplying, made up of gospel-believing disciples like ours, these churches are a powerful statement from God to the dark spiritual forces of our world. And the statement that they make, that God is making through these churches, is basically this. I win. I am wise. Behold what I have done. I've sent my very own son as a ransom for all people of all nations to come and to worship me. And the evidence I have of that are these local churches. Church, this is why we have a vision to multiply local churches. And I want to clarify this. It is not because we have some newer novel take on how we do church. You just see it the whole time. We're trying to just do what they say in the Bible. It's not new at all. It's not because of market dynamics or a low supply of healthy churches in our area. That is not it. It is not because of celebrating how well everything is going in our church either. It's not about any of that. You know, gathering disciples into this worldwide family of multiplying churches is God's vision. It is how he has chosen to make his wisdom known. Jesus is building his church even today, and we have an important part to play in that process. It goes far beyond just Redemption Church. This is an important part of why we exist to begin with. Our vision for the church needs to go far beyond redemption. We need an eternal, a global vision of the local church and its mission because God's redemptive plan is all-encompassing. It's not just a Western thing. It's not just an American thing. It's not just a suburban thing or a city thing. He is gathering a new spiritual people unto himself from all nations. The way he does it, is by redeeming sinners like us, gathering us into these churches where we can worship him, where we can make disciples, and we can multiply churches. Now, I want to I just talk a little bit about where we are as a church right now, because uh, we are at a really interesting and pivotal point uh, in the life of our church, uh, in some ways kind of a turning point, even, if you will. We started the church four years ago with 10 friends and we've been meeting for four years, and God has done some incredible things. Uh, we've recently purchased our own property, and we're going to be moving that way. 
Um, and you may have noticed we've grown, even in the last few months, to the extent that most of our services even now feel full. Um, and the building that we've purchased and the space where we will meet is about the same exact size as this space right here. Now, if our goal was to grow our nonprofit as large and influential as possible, then our next steps would be pretty clear and simple. You just keep multiplying these services so that more people can come, give money, you have a bigger building, you add on bigger staff, there we go. But one of the uniquenesses of our vision that I want to bring you into here is that we are pretty committed to doing just one service, uh, no matter what building we're in. And that's because, again, as we saw last week, it's part of who we are. We're a family. And in the same way that you wouldn't, you know, do two rotations of dinner in order to have more kids, um, you've seen meeting together is a part, a really important part of what we do on a weekly basis. It's crucial. And so as a church, we've already talked about adding a larger sanctuary someday so that we can grow a bit larger. Maybe we've said up to potentially maybe 300, still a somewhat intimate size, but in order to help us more effectively multiply churches. And it seems as though God will probably do that in time. But even still with this philosophy, I want to point out and I want to prepare us that someday, assuming God continues to grow our church slowly but surely, there will come a day where the space we have is full. <laughs> we, we, are, we have to accept a limitation <laughs> at that certain point. And I want to prepare us for how we're thinking about that, what we intend whenever that day would come. Our hope is to devote the time and the attention that we would otherwise put to more services and a bigger staff, and we want to pour that instead to multiplying local churches that share these, this vision and these values. And again, I want to prepare us for this because given the growth that God is bringing about, even in the past three, four months, uh, the elders are seriously considering a church plant, possibly even before in addition. In some ways, I think that'd be great. It'd be really exciting. I don't have any other details to share with you beyond that. Um, I would encourage you to pray about that. Talk, share what you think about that. This is, again, we're all doing this together. We'd love to hear what your thoughts are on that. And we'll see what God does. But listen, if anything, this is the point. If you want to envision what we pray Redemption Church would be in 10 years and 15 and 20 years, do not picture a huge church of 2,000 people with a bunch of different services. Picture instead maybe six, maybe eight, maybe 10 different tight-knit churches in our area, maybe averaging a couple hundred people at the most, with Church partners all over the world who are all working together to do what? To, to worship God, <laughs> to make disciples, and to multiply healthy churches. Church, this is why we exist. This is what we do, and we do it all to the glory of God the Father through Jesus Christ, his Son. So if you're here, you're new, you're just considering redemption, I want to encourage you in particular, don't just look for a nice church to attend. That, that almost certainly will not do, right? Uh, we need something much bigger. This is far more transcendent than that. I want to encourage, I want to call, I want to invite you to join us in this heavenly redemptive work. Join us as we work together to see God glorified in all of creation forever and ever as we worship him, make disciples, and multiply churches. If you would, let's pray together now.
Father, we bring all these things to you. All of our doing we lay before you at the foot of your son's cross. We want to worship and adore you in all that we do. We want to be made more and more like your son. We want to see your kingdom grow and expand in all the world. And we can do none of it, God. We need you. We want to give everything we have to you, to your purposes in the world, to your vision for your glory. We pray you would help us, God, particularly in the weeks ahead as we navigate this transition, particularly as things change and adapt in the life of our church, God. We bring it all to you. We submit it to you. We pray you be honored by it. In Jesus' name, amen.